So we're going to continue this morning in a uh, series uh, called Being the Church and uh, talk a little about what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And we've been doing this through the book of 1 Corinthians. Not the only place we find these instructions, but that's where we've been spending our time of late. And uh, been kind of talking, and we said it leading up to last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, kind of the pinnacle chapter, you might say, of the book of Corinthians. And yet, the funny thing is, I feel like we've studied 1 Corinthians 13 so much, we've heard it so much, that we've neglected everything else around 1 Corinthians 13. And so, um, after we, uh, L, as Dale mentioned, LT met Wednesday night, and during our meeting, someone's like, you know, we could spend more time talking about the love stuff, right? You went really fast through that. I understand that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't spend more time thinking about those attributes of love, but you know, we have talked about that so much, and we miss everything else happening in that book and in this book and so um for me i, I find it interesting because i want to move on now into 14 because it's almost like you have this linchpin you have all these attributes of the church that paul's been listing out for the church you know how we're to function what we're to do how we're to how to be with one another and it's all about this being and then there's this but here's the greatest way is love and then everything after this in the book is going to be manifestations of the love in chapter 13 and so we talk about well here's the list of you know the, you know love is patient love is kind um love is not self-seeking and and we kind of know that list almost verbatim but then paul begins to talk about how that love is manifest amongst the church and so that's why we're kind of transitioning this morning so you go right from and last week the title was lovers which was an interesting title right but then this week we went to builders and everything else after it's going to be something that we are doing with what we've learned about jesus christ this becomes kind of the um switch from maybe the doctrinal truths we ought to understand about ourselves to then who, how we're to integrate that in our lives in a real practical way. And so Paul's going to start to get into real specifics. Now again, you might have heard these uh, texts preached before because some of them have been used to to uh, start or snuff out controversies in the church, right, for better and for worse. Uh, they've been used to kind of uh, uh, spar with fellow believers and figure out where we ought to be, right, what right thinking is. And But I hope that what we do when we get into this is we think deeply about what it means to be the church and about the reality that all these things that Paul's going to expound on are actually rooted in the idea of this perfect love that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And so hopefully you can kind of um, see that connection with me. I, I, I see all that as a preamble bit because today we're talking about builders, right? The church is builders. It's one of the, one of the first things we're going to do with this love we've been given is build up one another. And so I want to kind of a little bit of background. We're going to do something we haven't really done very much. I'm going to jump out for a second. I want to remind us of, of Peter's good confession and of what Jesus himself then said about what it means to build a church. And so I want to kind of rightly position this, lest we think it's up to us and, and we're mistaken in that, right? That we would rightly think about um, what Jesus said about what he is doing amongst his people. So I'm just going to read it. You don't have to turn there. This is in, first, uh, this is in Matthew 16, uh, verse 13. When Jesus came to the, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, right? So he asked this question about the Son of Man, and then Jesus asked this question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? I want to make two real quick points here. First is, in this good confession opportunity, he's equating himself with the Son of Man, Right? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, who do you say that I am? So first of all, and then secondly, I think that's one of the most profound questions that we can ask of ourselves or of another uh, um, person. I wouldn't say believer, but believer and not believer. Who do you say Jesus is? This question that he asked Peter is like the bedrock question that undergirds all of our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of people who believe a lot of stuff about Jesus, but don't believe he's God in the flesh. And, there are, and this week we had an opportunity to celebrate a resurrection service, you know, like an anticipation of a resurrection when all hope seems lost. And, and there's this idea that all this confession is tied up. This reality is in who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? Am I, am I a, a, just a teacher or am I a resurrected uh, teacher or am I a king or am I God incarnate God himself who do you say that I am well anyway Jesus said it more succinctly well, what about you who do you say that I am right and then we get this good confession Simon Peter then answered you are 
the Christ. That's the anointed, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered this way. He replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. So there's divine revelation. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I'm just going to stop right there because I just wanted to hear that word as we think about what it means to, to be builders in the church. I want us to fundamentally and unapologetically proclaim that it is Jesus building his church. It is not up to us to make the church work. It is not up to us to, make, to, to strengthen and all these things. But today we're going to hear ways that we can participate with what God is doing. But the, the reality is, at the end of the day, is Jesus himself. It's God, God's self, who builds up his people. And as a matter of fact, you might even heard it in there. Not only does God build up his people, but God causes or compels his people to confess the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this one idea, on this rock, this confession of the Messiah, I'm going to build my church, ought to undergird everything that we're doing as believers in Christ. Like, that's the thing. If you want to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe, well, what do you think about Jesus? And then if they reciprocate, you can say, well, this is what I think about Jesus. And you can articulate that. He's the very son of God, God in the flesh, died for our sins, raised in the third day, resurrection hope for our lives. And we can then proclaim the gospel with clarity to those who might be listening. Even still, it's God himself. What does he say? Blessed are you because a man did not reveal this, but my father revealed it in heaven. And so we have that reality that God himself must reveal himself to people that they might believe the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a divine gift. We did not figure it out. We don't deserve a pat on the back for it. He gave it to his church as the gospel. And so praise God uh, for the gospel of Jesus. Then the other thing I wanted to share with you is actually from Corinthians. And um, this is actually 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. This is Paul then. I just wanted, these are two kind of understructures I want to get into this builder theme with today. So first is that, that Jesus is going to build his church on the confession of who he is. That's how he's going to build his church. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is master, Jesus is, you know, died and raised for our sins, um, then he builds his church. And then here Paul says, what after all is Apollos? Just let's not forget. And what after all is Paul? We are only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. And this is what Paul says. I planted, Apollos watered the seed, but God made it grow. And so we have the same idea there. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And so we have, again, this idea that is God himself that grows the church, right? God himself that develops, that builds the church. But then today, Paul's going to say, now that you've been called to love one another, build one another up. To, to build one another, to strengthen one another, to call one another. And this is all of us, not just, not some of us, but all of us doing this together. We're going to talk about how that works. Before we um, continue in the word then, I want to pray. We always do that God would teach us this morning. So pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come in together into your house and to hear your word proclaimed. We, we confess, Lord, that we can so often get this wrong. And Lord, even we, we maybe have been hurt by people who are, who are wielding your text or we, we hurt others when we wield your text haphazardly. And so, Father, we ask that today that we would handle it with a spiritual uh, sensitivity, with, with, a, with an awareness of your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray that um, not just the words that I say, but the words that we all hear are divinely appointed, that they're your words for your people that we would be included in this great uh, you know, train of saints that have been coming and, and that we would rightly divide your word, Father. And, and we can't do that ourselves. So would you do that for us this morning? Would you teach us in our hearts? I pray, Lord, that as we've thought about these things from Corinthians, that we really begin to reshape and mold and change how we live, that we might live in a manner more glorifying to you and indeed more empowered by your Holy Spirit. Help us to find that new place to live with you, even when it's uncomfortable. And then this morning, Lord, whatever we need to get from the text, help us to get it that we might 
build one another up for your glory and our good. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're actually going to get into uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is where we're going to be today, picking up right where we left off last time, 14. Um, and we're going to cover 1 through uh, 25. So this is what the Word says. Again, tying very directly back in to last week's message, follow the way of love. So he ties it. This is what it is, the most excellent way. So follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of the gift of prophecy. And we're going to hang out on two major concepts this morning that Paul was writing to the church about that he thought were very important. And you can say maybe because they were raised issues in the Corinthian church, or maybe because they're issues that we all ought to contend with on one extreme or the other, wherever we happen to land. But Paul lines out here and he says, follow the way uh, of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but especially this gift of prophecy. And so this is the first thing that we're going to pull from the text this morning. It's that we build up when we prophesy. And, and it's interesting because the word there is a little different than, you know, prophesy and prophecy. Prophecy is a noun. Prophesy is what you do, right? And so it's like we build each other up when we prophesy. Prophesying is one of those words that maybe you, you've heard used and you've seen it maybe used like in charlatan kind of ways. Like people have said, like, I predict in 20, what was it, like uh, 2000, the computers were going to die and they didn't. Or um, what was the Mayan calendar was going to end and then the world's going to come to an end and it didn't, right? And, and so th this is maybe one of those things that I will confess to you that I feel like it's been abused a bit. Like, when people say, I predict, I'm like, man, if you do that in the name of Jesus Christ, you better be right. <laughs> like, you better have a perfect track record, because if you don't, you're not doing it right. But then I'm looking through this text, and maybe you've been reading it with me this week, and I'm like, wait a minute, it's not exactly what I thought it was to prophesy. We often think it's all about these future state, but, but there's more to what's happening. And so Paul wants the church in Corinth to desire their spiritual gifts. And I want you to see that as well. He says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And he's listed a few of them already that we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit in our new birth to use for the building up of the church. But then he says, especially this gift of prophecy or especially prophesy that we wanted the gifts. Because anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He enters the mysteries within his spirit. I'm going to read one more when I talk about this. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, for their encouragement, for their comfort. And he, uh, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies a church. So here's the second introduction that Paul's going to make then in these spiritual gifts. He listed them out before, but he's like, some of you are going to prophesy. That's a great gift. That's one you should aspire to have. Some of you are going to have the gift of tongues, and that's a gift as well. And he's going to articulate these two positions of the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Now, you might be comfortable with either one of these, right? There's a whole group of folks in the church that are called cessationists, and they think that all this stopped. That they, that they, they don't have to think about it because it's, it's over. That time is over, right? And yet... I don't see that articulated in Scripture. I, I've, I've, I've heard where people have said it. I've heard where people have preached from it. But I don't see the text saying those things. This was Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And, and he's encouraging them in their faith to be, um, to be diligent in what they're called to do. To love each other well. Okay, so this is what he lines up. Prophecy versus tongues. And then he's going to kind of articulate what it is. So let's make, see if we can get a better definition of, of prophecy or what it means to prophesy from the text. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So that's the, that, that's the first thing that we're going to notice is that prophesying is speaking to one another, right? Paul's going to say here that to speak in tongues, and that can be interpreted two different ways, always, speaking in foreign language or speaking a language not known to mankind at all. Right? So a divine language. But Paul makes a case here. He says, when people are speaking in tongues, they're speaking to God directly, but not to anyone else around them. Right? So, so this is where Paul gets in in verse 4. It's not edifying for the church, but only edifying for the person speaking it. Right? And he's going to articulate more of that in a minute. So that's the first thing is that prophecy, when we prophesy, we build up the church. It's because we speak to one another. And you might go, man, I don't know if I have the gift of prophecy prophecy what would that even mean well here paul lines it out for us everyone who prophesies in verse three speaks to people for their strengthening for their encouragement 
and for their uh, comfort. I have a fourth one here, and teaching. And so uh, these are the ways that, 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 oh no, there it is, yeah, edification, encouragement, and, and, counsel, and consolation. And so here's three effects or three attributes of speaking to one another that is not included in spiritual speaking to God himself. So what does it look like then? To, there's these three things. The first, and this is actually where we get our title this week, is um, edification. And that means that speaking to one another builds each other up. It has, it's the idea of um, a spiritual a building, right? Uh, a spiritual advancement. Um, encourage one another in the faith. Spring each other on to go deeper with God. To, to, and, and we're going to talk about like, what that looks like, but to really push each other to lean into the gospel. Because often we will think maybe we, we've come to faith, we believe the gospel, and then we're like an autopilot until eternity comes. You know what I mean? You punch your ticket and you're just waiting for the train to take off. But the truth is that in our lives, we can lean into the things that God has for us in this life before we meet him face to face. Like this is what our spiritual life of response looks like. Yeah, we've been saved, called out of death into life, and now we lean into it. And so one thing we can do is um, build each other up by encouraging one another to lean into God for all the things in your life. I love the imagery here because it literally means to build a house. And you go, what kind of house? A spiritual house to live in. Like when you're speaking, when you're prophesying in the biblical understanding, you're actually building someone else's spiritual house. You're helping them to have shelter. We sang songs this morning about that, didn't we? Like a place to have, have safety in storms, um, someone who holds us when things get really dark in our lives. Like that's what we're doing is we're, we're building up the spiritual house that we live in with God. It's, it's one of the um, attributes of prophetic words. They're strengthening for us. They, they move us into that place of, of God and relationship with him. All the more as the day approaches. Here's the second thing then. It's encouragement. And this is not just like, hey, you can do it, but a holy encouragement. An encouragement that takes the gospel into account and begins to help each other apply it to what's happening right now in our lives, right? And so um, it's this, uh, it could be a, a considered like a legal advocate, like, I would say this, I think encouragement, because these next two, encouragement and consolation are going to be um, kind of close, but I think encouragement is for whenever I begin to forget that the gospel applies to me. It, the, the word actually means, encouragement means that you've cried out in a time of help, right? You've called for aid. Quick, I need assistance. I'm in trouble over here. And someone comes to you from the church and they speak into your heart in that moment right, about the gospel, about the truth of the gospel for you, about what Jesus did, because even though we're part of the church, we can begin to forget that the gospel applies to us, so we don't have to be perfect. Do you ever feel that in the church? Like, people are like, man, you're a Christian, but you're just like everybody else, and we're like, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, and then, we, and then we get in this kind of perfection trap, but this is like, no, yeah, I'm not, because Jesus died for my sins, because I'm a sinner. We need someone to speak that prophetically into our lives. Don't forget, brother or sister, how much Christ paid for you. Don't, and that's not in a way to, like, to do more. No, to receive it. Believe that. Know that he has forgiven your sins. It's a legal advocacy. It's when the enemy comes and whispers in our ear like Dale started to talk about. You know, you know the funny thing about that is, by the way, you said that Jesus used scripture uh, to refute Satan. But, you know, Satan was twisting scripture to try to tempt Jesus. Isn't that crazy? They were both quoting scripture to each other with different intent. I would say, you know, Jesus proclaiming it. <laughs> and Satan was using it to manipulate. You know, and that can happen. And in those moments, we need brothers and sisters to come alongside us and say, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that you've been paid for. It's a legal advocacy before a, ju a judge or a judiciary. You are free in Christ. Your sins are paid for. It's more than that because it's a personal urging. It's, it's uh, answering a call when someone is in distress. Yeah? This is prophetic and we don't think of that being prophetic often. We go, that, but that's an effect of a prophetic word to somebody. And their moment. You know that one time? I'm, I'm always wondering, I'll feel more about this. You know, we're heading for eternity. 
right? <laughs> We're heading for forever with God together. And I wonder if we'll even know how many times when we were faithful to what God called us to do or say to someone, and we never, how many, will we know the impact for eternity for that? I mean, have you ever had somebody come to you and just say something in your moment of need, and it just stuck? And you're like, man, I just needed to, I needed to hear that again. And then you live on that. They don't know it. I mean, unless I chase them down and say, hey, that thing you said was really powerful. And praise God when we can do that. But sometimes we can't even do that. Listening to a word on the radio or you're, you know, you're, um, you're, 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 just, you're just changed because of an encounter. This is the work of God and this prophetic work happening among us. So that's the second thing. So first is edification, the building up of a spiritual house. Second is encouragement when we are discouraged by how our own spiritual state or how broken and sinful we are, which can happen, of course, from time to time. But then the third uh, manifestation is consolation. And I'm just going to read these again because I have different words in my notes. Um, but uh, let's see here. Speaks for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So comfort's a more accessible word than consolation, right? Comfort. Now, and this is kind of the other side of the equation. So instead of someone calling out in a time of distress, it's about a circumstance or something that they, that they aren't thinking about with a gospel lens in their lives, right? And so this is when someone's really hurting or really feeling lost. And this is an exhortation, an encouragement. Uh, this is more comforting about know that this isn't beyond the scope of God to deal with. It's about speaking into circumstances around someone and helping them to rightly understand it and then be encouraged again. I love the word exhorted because it has this idea of calling someone out of something, you know what I mean? And that's hard work to get in there, but that's prophetic work. An effect of a prophetic word is to call people out of like their circumstance or thinking that, 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 that you know, God has forgotten them or, or, or it's not going to get any better and all the lies that we are told in this life. And so one of the effects is this consolation or exhortion or comfort uh, from, from a prophetic word from someone else. It, it means to, um, and this is interesting, it means to speak intimately to someone else. And here's the thing about that. To speak intimately, you have to be intimately involved in their lives. Like you've have to gotten to a place where you know something that's really sensitive and then be able to speak the gospel into that. Um, I, I think there's so many opportunities like this, but I think of, of um, times of loss or times of disillusionment, right? Times of deep struggle. This is a moment where we can edify the church. We can strengthen the believers all the more as they approach us. In verse 4, then he says this, um, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So it's about this. I want you to think about this for a minute, about tongues being an intimacy between you and God. And, and I'm not going to talk about normalization of tongues, but I, I at least understand that it's this language with which you speak to God. It could be prayer language. It could be just an intimate sense of who God is speaking. You know, I don't know if you have that, but that thing where there's something happening internally that you can sense is beyond yourself. It's not your voice. You know your voice, right? But it's an external voice speaking into your soul. There's this intimacy involved and how encouraging that is to know in that moment that you are being loved or cared for, that God knows us inside and out. Well, in that same way then, it says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So I am being edified because of the intimacy I have, but he who prophesies does that same thing for the church. So again, it's the difference between being internally directed and externally directed. And here, um, one who would prophesy is in edifying the church. That's the ecclesia, those who are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, lest we think that Paul's going, okay, so prophecy is good and tongues are bad, right? Because you could read it that way, and that's what's been done with the sword sometimes. You know, like, look at that. So stop with the tongue stuff. This is what Paul follows it up with. Hear it, verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, so he's not against it. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. By the way, can we just say that means that every one of them did not speak in tongues? Just a side note here. I would like everyone to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy. 
So the two things, he would rather the church encourage one another than to have some really tight, intimate relationship with God. He wants, he wants that, but he ultimately wants us to be encouraging to one another. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. And so Paul's going to then have a way for us to maybe take this internal dialogue we're having with God and begin to speak it to other people. And so he kind of makes a... Um, a pathway there. So you see, he who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. So it's a better gift. That's why I want you to aspire to it. Unless that person interprets so that the church may be edified. And so it's this way that we could maybe um, internally begin to take this dialogue. So it's not this or that. It's these things coming together in some way, right? This is tongues and prophecy. It's this idea that we can then begin to bless the church by articulating the things that God has revealed to us in our spirit. We can then begin to connect our whole lives together for the gospel. All this rooted in love, but we can begin to appreciate what God, opportunities God has given us to bring comfort, to bring edification, to bring encouragement to the church. So it's not forbidding anything, not normalizing everything, it's saying there's opportunities then for us to use our spiritual gifts to strengthen the church. Okay? I feel like I want to say one more, one more thing about that. There's a tendency we might have to believe that our intimacy with God is for us alone. We're blessed by it, we praise God for it, and then we don't do anything else with it. But there is a chance that maybe God is sharing that with you that you might share it with someone else, right? That you might find opportunity to say, you know what, I was praying earlier and I had, I, this is kind of what I was thinking about. And not to say it like to, 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 to push it over on people or proclaim it over people, but to, to share in the intimacy, that idea of, of, of saying it beside intimate conversation about sharing with, we're heading the same direction and this is what I have been encouraged by in my life. As a matter of fact, it might even be just the fact that the Spirit is working in lives of believers at all. You know how the Spirit works inside of you for your sanctification? You know how the Spirit that works inside of you to assure your salvation, that you have confidence in Jesus Christ? Maybe even you know how God awakens you with the Word proclaimed that you could rightly position yourself under his authority and in full confidence of what he is doing in Jesus Christ. These are all prophetic gifts that we can, we can share with one another, right? Sharing our spiritual journeys. So I have a question. Um, who could you build up spiritually? Who might you find in your life that you could bring comfort or encouragement or exhortation to? I just want you to think about that. I can't think of anyone that couldn't use it. But who maybe has God placed you around that you could aspire to this most uh, excellent way of loving people to speak truth to them? All right, so we're going to press on now in verse 6. Then Paul's going to turn here a little bit. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy, or word of instruction, right? So here's some things. We're going to delineate those things as well. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, now hear the analogy he uses, how can you be ready for battle? And so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone else know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. And so what we want to know, the next thought is, we build up when we prophesy, right? But we build up when we use intelligible words. That actually came right there. I hope you heard it. How will we know unless you use intelligible words? And we're going to break that down. What does it mean? There's a couple ways you could say it besides intelligible words. It could be clear language, that simply, or it could be meaningful language. So not language devoid of meaning, you know, like the intentional real talk. 
Have you ever had to do that with somebody? Like, have you ever done that? Not had to, but gotten to do that with somebody? Sit down and just look deeply and say, I want to say some things that really matter to you. This is clear language or clear words. Paul makes the analogy here that it's like a, a note being sounded on a trumpet, or it's like an orchestra playing each note specifically. The more clear, the less muddy, the better, the more edifying it is for the church. So we, we uh, build each other up with intelligible words. He actually calls these things profitable. He does this in an inverse relationship. He starts talking about if I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? So how will it profit you if I'm speaking in tongues versus prophesying unless I bring you, and here's some things he says I would bring, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or word of instruction. So we're going to delay those real quickly here. But revelation is an uncovering, unmasking of a truth right? It literally means to take a sheet off of someone's eyes and they can see for the first time. A revelation is an intelligible word. This is what I was talking about a little bit when, you, when, you say people, when we say people are in the middle of a, of a storm of life and they can't see clearly. You could come in and say, can you see what's happening here? Do you understand what's being done, what sort of situation you're in, what's being done around you? It's an unmasking or revealing of the truth. One of the funniest things about our life as people is we're so not self-aware of our own errors, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm reminded of this all the time. I need brothers and sisters to tell me when I don't see things rightly. That's a revelation to me. Uh, do you know how you come off? No, I don't know. Let me tell you how you come off. Um, do, you, do you know wh what I'm hearing you say when I... When I don't think it's what you're trying to say, I don't. We need that kind of revelation, that kind of sheet removing that we could understand uh, with clarity with somebody that we, would, that we would know. That's profitable, Paul says. Those, that's profitable work, revelation. By the way, the revelation, of course, is what God is doing. So it's not to say like, well, is, is it not biblical revelation? Yeah, it's revelation. Like this is what God is doing. But it's, it's a removing. It's a seeing for the first time. Or the second idea here is knowledge, see, or how will it be a profit to you unless it's knowledgeable. So this clarity of thought can bring knowledge. And I love, uh, knowledge can be summed up a few ways, but one way that's awesome right now is facts. Just facts. <laughs> There's so much muddled thinking happening uh, in, in the church and beyond the church. Let's just talk facts for a minute, you know. Let's just get to the the reality of what's happening here. And this is that moment of bringing an intelligible word or a clear thought or a meaningful uh, conversation then becomes um, uh, transformative because it's factually based. This is also the idea we have of wisdom, right? Not just knowledge, but how to apply the knowledge to our lives. And so we have that as well. Um, or another thing you might hear on church world is called doctrine, right? good doctrine and bad doctrine. Doctrine is just teaching, but it's knowledge applied. And so we have the opportunity then to encourage and correct one another with clear thinking on what we believe and why we believe it. This is, by the way, why we should be having conversations with people about our faith. You know, you might always think like, man, how am I going to tell someone else what I know about God? But there's a bigger risk here that you could be wrong. And because you never said the words out loud, no one's corrected you. <laughs> Does that make sense? So sometimes it's super good to say it out loud. So we go, oh, that's not exactly right. Then let's see what the Bible actually says about that. So um, our preservation is not always for others, but for ourselves. All right. So revelation and knowledge. Then the fourth thing he says is profitable is prophecy, right? And this is to share a current. There's two things here. We're going to articulate. But a current divine reality or a future prediction, those two concepts are tied up in prophetic word, right? So it can be what God's doing right now. Do you know what God is doing right now? And you might say, well, no, no, it's about what's going to happen in the future. But you remember like the Old Testament's full of prophecies where it's like, this is what the Lord says. And it's not about what's going to happen. You're going to go win that war, fight that battle or whatever. It's this. I've been rebuking you for months because you've not been listening to me. Like, that's a prophetic word. We always think about it being something else out in the future. But it's about what God is doing right now in our lives. And, and, uh, and it's a word from him about our situation. Who would know it? So it's uh, sharing a current divine reality of our lives or a future divine prediction. It can be a profitable word, a clear instruction something that would transform our journey.
And then the third is a word of instruction or teaching. And this is just um, one of the things I love and honestly uh, find really difficult. So I'll do a couple of caveats here, but um, the younger kids, the younger people give me the hardest for me to teach them. You guys have that experience? I subbed in the Highland School District for, I don't know, a year and a half or so after I got out of college. And uh, my favorite was middle school. The high school um, AP classes, physics, they were a little beyond my ability. I just hope they didn't burn the place down while I was there or whatever, you know. But the worst was the little kids. Um, Why do I say this? Because we have people in that room right now teaching small children the gospel. That's a really hard thing to do. Maybe not for you. You're like, it ain't hard. No, it's hard for me. Uh, it's really hard. Because you have to be clear. You have to instruct with intelligible words. You have to simplify. You know why I find this annoying? Because Jesus <laughs> did this so effortlessly, right? He drew the little children to him. He told them. He actually turned around and said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these because they see it. But you adults with your convoluted thinking, you can't see it anymore. Lest you become like one of them, you'll never enter in. Oh, no. I was talking to somebody this last week, and they said, um, I love my church. We, we went back to the children's message. A new pastor came, and he brought the children's message back. It's my favorite part of the service. I'm like, oh, really? Well, that's, that's great. And she goes, yeah, because that's the only message I understand. <laughs> That's not a slight on her. That's an offense to those of us who make it too complicated. She's like, at least I get that before he goes off with his whatever else he's going to teach that day. What does it mean to speak with clarity to a brother or sister in Christ? What does it mean to think clearly and simply about the gospel that would be a benefit to others. It would build one another up. Well, this is what Paul lines out. Again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear call, who can be ready for battle? He's like, this is really important that we prepare one another for the fight that's coming. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? Now, I do want to say, he's, re- he's rebuking a bit here this idea of getting together and just everyone, you know, chaos. And it's going to even articulate that more, but you know, the babbling, the noise, without, uh, without love for one another, which is exactly what he tied into um, last chapter, the clanging cymbal and the gong, the resounding gong. Unless you speak with intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in this world, yet none of them is without meaning. So everyone who's saying something is trying to communicate something. If then... I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying. I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he or she is a foreigner to me. And so there's a little subtle thing here in verse 11 where Paul says the problem with not being clear in our communication is it robs us of relationship. It robs us of knowing each other or of understanding one another's motives. One of the hardest things is to love each other well when you're constantly questioning what someone's motives are. Do you really love me or are you manipulating me? Do you really want my best uh, interest? Do you have my best interest at heart or are you trying to get me to do something for you? And Paul says, actually, the language is not interpreted by both the same way. This is why he's such a fan of prophetic, clear language is it makes us foreigners to one another. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a foreign country where you don't speak the language, but it's really intimidating to do that. I I remember one time I got on the elevator and people were speaking another language, and I was convinced they were talking about me. Or you're going through a checkpoint when you're going into a foreign country, and the guards are speaking to each other, and you know what they're saying, and you get really like they're talking about me. Or the stewardess in the airplane, or the people in the seat behind you, or the person that works with you. Like, we, we begin to think, I'm a foreigner to them. It makes us feel unknown to one another. And yet, clear language defeats that, taking the time to articulate clearly. It's about finding a shared language or a common relationship and building a relationship with one another. So here's the question I have. How much effort 
do, do you and I make to ensure that the words we use are, are received as we intended them? There's this common kind of vernacular now that says, it's not what you say that matters, what's heard, what, what is heard that matters. And there's truth to that. But how can you know that they're hearing what you're trying to say? That's work. I, there's been a couple ways like, what do you think I'm, what do you think I would say? I've had that conversation with people. I know you're going to say, well, what do you think I'm going to say? Because you might be right and you, you, you might not understand. Maybe I've not been clear what I'm communicating. Or there's this uh, kind of infamous one where it's, um, so what you're saying is, now that's actually a helpful thing if what you say back is actually what someone's saying. But if it's not, then you have to just say, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this other thing. And so we try to communicate clearly. But how much effort do we make even trying to make sure that the things that we say or the things that we do right? Because Paul says love is tied up in our behavior, are understood as we intended them to be. By the way, one thing I used to do with this deal, because it, it was such a pressing issue, was before I said something hard, I told you before, but I'm going to say it again. Before I said something really hard to somebody that I loved, I would preface it by saying, you know I love you, right? <laughs> and then hard thing, because I really do. And I hope you really love me. And so if you're going to say a hard thing, it's like, well, you know I love you, right? Yeah. Well, can you hear this thing from me that's not great, that you need to understand? Or that is great, and you need to understand. All right? So picking up now after verse 11. Verse 12. So, is, so it is with you. Right? So this confusion in language is the same problem with us. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. And so Paul says this, we are going to build up the church, and this is a tie back into a few weeks ago, with our spiritual gifts. And so we're going we're gonna to edify the church by using our spiritual gifts. You figure out what your gifts are, and then you use them for the benefit of the church. Paul encourages spiritual zeal here, right? It's a pursuit. It's, it's um, chasing after something. He's like, yeah, you're going to chase after spiritual gifts. Excel in the ones that build up the church. If you want a spiritual gift, want the one that's going to benefit the body of Christ. That's Paul's argument. Use your spiritual gifts to build one another up. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Have you, do you have some discernment about what your giftedness is? then how can you use that to encourage those around you in the faith? Not just go, well, that's awesome, I have a spiritual gift, but use it in some tangible way. Try to, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Verse 13, for this reason, if anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray, wait, 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 for this reason, because of this, you're trying to build up church, anyone who does speak in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. And I'm going to say two things here. The first is you could pray for words to understand what you're even saying in tongues that you could rightly share it with other people. That's a prayer that God would honor, that you would share it. But I've also seen this manifest where there's been someone who speaks in tongues and someone who interprets in tongues. It's, I've seen that happen. And the interpretation is edifying even as the speaking in tongues is a bit baffling to some, right? But I've also been in gatherings where people have spoken in tongues without any interpretation and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, like, not literally, but it just doesn't even make sense spiritually. It's like, it's something that's God, but I'm not sure what it is. I'm not comfortable. I'm not included in it. I'm, I'm, and I'm a believer and I don't understand what's happening right now. But if someone were to interpret, not the least of all you, that you could share. For this reason, anyone who speaks in tongues should pray that he could interpret what he is saying. God, give me the words to say this that people could understand. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what should I do? I will pray with my spirit. Here's Paul's instructions. But I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I also sing praise with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who don't understand say amen to that? And so he's like, I'm going to do spiritual things. 
I'm going to have a spiritual life. Paul's like, I'm going to have an interior life with God that's my life with God and that's very meaningful to me. But I'm going to constantly push back into using my, my, my mind. And that's the next thing, actually. So we build up the church by using our spiritual gifts, but we build up our, the church when we use our minds. There's a couple other words you could use here. We build up the church when we think deeply about issues. We don't just give the curt answer, the surface answer. You know, I know what you're going to say. And this is like really surface level. It doesn't really go very deep. It doesn't really take into account the suffering or the difficulty or the brokenness of the situation. But it's these cheap words. No, think deeply. Use your mind. Or here's another way you could say it, reason. I'm going to reason through what's happening here. I'm going to use all the facilities that God has given me to bring about wisdom or knowledge or understanding what's happening right? If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind, Paul says, is unfruitful. I don't even know myself what's happening. I don't even understand myself what's happening. It's edifying. I'm encouraged. I know God is in it, but I don't understand it. So then Paul says this, I'm going to pray with my spirit. So this is the exhortation coming from the word. Yes, get into your spirit spiritual life. Yes, get into your prayer closet. Yes, seek the Lord intimately, daily, as a normal part of your experience. But then, but then think about what you're believing, or think about what you're praying, or think about what this means, and, and ask the Lord, hey, Lord, would you help me to reason then? Because either one of these things isn't adequate. Reason without spirituality is worthless, right? I mean, you could some good but not ultimate good. But spirituality without reason is just confusing. People are like, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand what that means. I love the second one, though. This is why I love that we sing words. <laughs> we sing words, right? Because it's edifying. We were talking in our, our worship team. Um, one of the things that's uh, a struggle right now is with contemporary music, it's really awesome and emotive, and you can sing it out with passion, right? But sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's very shallow, the things we're saying. So then you kind of flip back through the old hymn book, and it's hard to sing. It's not very emotional, but the words are so powerful, there's a doctrinal journey every time you open a hymn. You, you have had an experience. You've taken a journey. And so we've been thinking about that. Well, how can we integrate? How can we integrate those deep words into our passionate singing? Because that was their intention. That's why they were written. So that's what, I'm, when I sing praises, I'm going to sing with all my spirit. But I'm going to use my mind to think about what I'm saying. It's a dangerous thing, by the way, to sing passionately and not think about the words. That's a super dangerous thing to do. So Paul says, I'm going to use my mind. I'm going to think deeply. Or I'm going to reason together. So I have a question. Where are you at in the continuum then? Because I would guess you're somewhere on the continuum between spirit, spirit-filled, spirit-led, like, or thinking, like using your mind, using reason, where are you at on the spectrum? I would encourage that we would be integrated, that we would be spirit-led and thinking, that we would use our minds and our hearts, and that we'd be able to have deep, meaningful conversations with one another, but also edified, encouraged, or formed by the Spirit of God. Where would God have you to be? Verse 16. If you're praising God with your spirit... How can the one who finds himself among those who do not understand, that means in a position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? So what is Paul's whole push here? Why is he, again, he's not anti-spiritual things at all. He loves it. But he's like, why? Because it's not just a matter of proclaiming things that can be understood, but we build one another up when, we, when others can agree with what we're saying. The word amen there means, yes, so be it. It is so. So, and, and this is interesting because it says, if, if you're praising God with your spirit, how can the one who finds himself among those who don't understand say amen to, those, to the thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? There's an, a, Paul has a fundamental belief that anyone hearing the words ought to be able to agree or 
by opposite disagree with what's being said. So they ought to be able to say, amen, yes, me too. I feel the same way. I get it. I understand what you're saying. And his big push for prophetic clear language is that others might be able to make a decision to agree or disagree with what's being said. Verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man, the other person is not edified. They have no way to include themselves in what you're saying. So we give them a choice. We give them information. We give them what we know and believe, and they give it to us, and then we can say, yes, we agree, or no, we don't agree. But at least there's an opportunity for agreement, not just confusions. Verse 18, and this, I thank God, Paul says, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So again, this was probably an issue in the Corinthian church. Paul's like, this isn't about not speaking tongues. I speak tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I just want to hit pause for a minute. Paul said, I would rather say five words that were intelligible, understandable, that you could agree or disagree with, than to speak 10,000 words in a tongue. I was blown away by the ratio, five to 10,000. That's how much Paul believes that we're called to encourage one another, to not be selfish in our faith, but be worried about a brother or sister, what they might, what they might not know, what they might need to know, or how we might need to be corrected ourselves by risking speaking clearly. That's amazing to me. Five words versus 10,000. He says, this is where the power of the church is in this opportunity for agreement and moving forward, a right understanding. I could go on about this, but I won't. But this is applicable to so many places of our life. And very few places do we do the hard work of saying, and by the way, this is where things, Bible studies, right? Getting to a small group Bible study where you can converse over the word. You can hear an opinion different than yours and share your opinion, your thoughts, right? Your understanding, I mean, opinion like this is what I think. I mean, like that's what you think, right? I've thought about this. This is what I believe to be true. Be open to correction in this way. Um, others then can agree or disagree with us, right? Or we can agree or disagree with others. This is why it's such an important thing to set and to think through these things. Family groups or small groups, Bible studies, um, really anywhere that you're focusing on the things of God, we ought to have some conversation about what it all means scripturally. Verse 20, brothers, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they won't listen to me, says the Lord. So this idea that there's this coming time when God's going to use foreigners to proclaim gospel truth to people that they're not going to believe because they're foreigners. It's like this is a thing that's coming. This was predicted. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. And I have to confess something. I looked at that and looked at that, and I don't understand that. Because he just said that, that clarity and prophecy is understandable and you can agree. But then he turns around and says, but tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. But he also said unbelievers would be confused by tongues. They would say, what does this even mean? So then I have to dig in and say, what does it mean to be a sign? It's a wonder. It's something that you don't understand. Like, what was that? And he says, yeah, it's a mystery, it's a, it's a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, because I can tell you, I told you earlier, I was in the room with a bunch of believers, and a whole bunch of them were speaking in tongues at the same time, and I wasn't particularly edified, but I knew what was happening. So I wasn't totally confused. I can't imagine, though, if I was not a believer, what I would have thought of that group of people who were just all speaking at the same time around me. Not in English, by the way, right? A few people were speaking language I understood, but most people were speaking language I did not understand and not even the same language altogether. It's a sign for believers, not unbelievers. However, prophecy is for believers, not for unbelievers. And again, I'm perplexed because he said they could agree. I don't know. Verse 23, maybe you can answer that. Like maybe after the service you can say, this is what that means. I'd love to hear. 
23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand come in or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And this is Paul's big issue for the gospel. Will they not say you've lost the plot? I don't understand what you all are trying to do here. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not yet understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, speaking truth, being clear, articulating the gospel, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and he will be judged by all there. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And so this is maybe a surprising thing, but one of the things that happens is that we build each other up in the conviction of sin. When we gather together and, and, and we get convicted of our sin, there's two words that are used here for being convicted, and it means to be convicted. That means to feel the right guilt of our sin or to be examined. That word means to be judged by everyone. You've heard that before, like, oh, it's a bunch of judgmental people, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the true judgment over sin, like that sin is worthy of death and that we're all sinners and that we, we, we couldn't make it right. And that conviction of sin, uh, I have had the conversation over the years with people. One of the reasons that they exclude from church is they go, I can't do that. I can't be around a place where I'm going to feel bad about my behavioral choices. I, ca- I can't get around a group of people who are going to remind me of how broken I am. And I go, what? And they're like, no, every time I come, I'm just, oh, what's wrong with me? And I feel convicted, and I I know. And this is what people have said. I know it's God. I just don't want to be part of that. I'd rather just live in ignorance of all of my sin. But the church, and this might not be clear, but the church is built up. We, you and I, are built up when we're convicted of our sin during our gatherings. This is a normative experience when clear doctrine is taught, that we're examined, that we're judged, and not by other people in the room, but by God himself. So when our sin is convicting us, and we're bearing the weight, and we feel the burden, that is edifying, that is building us up. It is a good thing, listen to me, that we would remember the sinners that we are. I'm just convinced of that because we get into all kinds of trouble when we think we don't have a sin problem in our life. We get all off the rails. But when we remember again how depraved we can be, how we are broken our thinking can be, how we can be wrong and think we're right so many times, well, then that brings us to a place where we are convicted and examined for our sinful behavior for the ways that we've treated others. We find this is a gift in the church. So that's half the thing though, right? Why, this is what my friend didn't understand then when they like, because you feel the conviction of your sin. I don't know if you feel it. Things, and we, we, we meet weekly right now. Bible studies might meet weekly but you feel the weight of things going wrong and and you know and you can bring to mind errors and mistakes and you feel that and it's right and it builds us. It builds us up because right from that then it says what in verse 25? And the secrets of your heart will be laid bare. The little lies we tell us, the little deceits that are happening, the little things And it says, and when this is laid bare, look at what the word says. I hope you're looking at it. Then he, so he will fall down on his face and worship God, saying, surely he is among you. We build up when we worship God. So we we get the conviction of sin, and, and that's part of this experience. But then what ought it to do, church? It ought to drive us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I just want to say that that might be a normative experience, that when you come, and not just here at Family Bible, but anywhere where the Word's being preached or you're reading the Word in a study and you're convicted of your sin, like, I want you to understand that's a normative experience of reading the Scripture or of considering deeply the things of God. But then let that moment of conviction and of your right judgment drive you into the gospel of Jesus again 
that he died to forgive all of our sins, that the cross that we have up here, maybe some of you have on your neck this morning, is a reminder that he has come, come and done what we could never do on our own. And then it just drives us then into absolute worship of God. We say, yes, he's the one that forgives sins. Yes, the gospel is the way. Yes, there's no hope apart from Christ Jesus. There's no way forward. If God doesn't make a way, there's no way. Let me tell you how you can lean into this. There are a whole bunch of folks in this life who are counting on being good enough to gain eternity. And I'm not talking about just with the gospel. They just think, I'm going to do enough good stuff. And you can derail that almost, and not that you're, you're trying to derail it to be mean, but in love to say, how do you know you've done enough? When do you have peace? And they often will say, well, when do you have peace? And I say, because Jesus did it. He did all of it for us. He gave himself that we might be free. It's a gift that we continue to return to. I just want you to understand that's a normative experience of worship, conviction of sin and worship of God, that we ought to then rally to the cross. We ought to gather again and say, yes, this is the gospel. He died to set us free. Not only that, but he was raised to new life. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the communion table. I thank you so much for the invitation we have to come and to receive good news. I thank you for the conviction of sin that builds us up and the edification we get from brothers and sisters who are willing to risk being thoughtful and honest with us. I pray, Lord, as we come to your table, we would rightly examine our own hearts, that we would feel the weight of our sin, but not, not to create any false suffering, but to acknowledge your glory, that you have paid for us to be free. Father, I pray for those of us as we come to the table that we would see in your death the, the, the path to eternal life and that we would receive communion together, that we would join, we would partake, we would celebrate all that Jesus has done for his church. Thank you, Lord, for your gift. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sin that's been paid for. Help us to respond as your spirit enables and the Father leads. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.